Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for uh, coming to this lecture. Uh, may I just know how many of you attended the first lecture? Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for showing up again. <laughs> but just uh, let me get started. I thought for the benefit of those who might not have attended the first lecture, I would just like to explain that I've devoted this series of lectures to a discussion on cities and urban life. And the lectures will focus on the development and management of cities and lean towards more of the physical and spatial aspects of cities. In my first lecture, I started by looking at the Lee Kuan Yew World City Prize Laureate Cities. So we took a very uh, global tour to many cities around the world. And I tried to distill some best practices and the lessons they might hold for us. So with that backdrop, in this second lecture, I will dive into Singapore's urban future viewed more at a national level. And finally, in my third lecture, I will be touching on the heartlands. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at an international planning congress in Sydney. I was pleasantly surprised when the MC introduced Singapore as the rock star city. And he quipped that this is because Singapore is very well planned, not because I had long hair and I had a guitar, right? But what an accolade for Singapore, given that just five decades ago, we were a city of slums and squatters, and we have indeed come some way. Singapore at just 720 square kilometres is about half the size of metropolitan London, with a population of about 5.79 million people. We are land and resource constrained. We are a small island with very big needs, because we are not just a city but also a country. And in addition to meeting the day-to-day -day needs to support economic and social needs, we have to cater to very large infrastructure needs which enable us to function as an independent, sovereign country. It's hard to believe, you know, that on this little island we house five airports, 17 reservoirs, several nature reserves, an extensive land for military training, and one of the largest container ports in the world. And unlike London and New York, we have to provide for all these users within our city, since we have no hinterland. Well, but on the whole, we've managed our urban growth quite well, not bad. Uh, this is Mercer's quality of living rankings in 2017. Well, we're not in the top five, but neither are many cities in Asia. We are, but however, one of the most, or is the most livable city uh, in Asia, but ranked 25th globally. But going forward, many changes, both externally and internally, will pose challenges for us. So what are these challenges? How do we anticipate them so as to build an attractive urban future with a good quality of life? Well, maintaining economic growth and competitiveness is the first challenge. The Committee on the Future Economy has highlighted that subdued global growth, rising anti-globalization, and protectionist policies will hurt our small, open economy. So we have to remain relevant and competitive and tap on new opportunities for growth. Hygiene factors like good governance, stability, availability of skills, safe and friendly business environment, all these are fundamental. But on the physical aspects, we have to ensure that we remain attractive and competitive city for businesses. We must have adequate space, reliable utilities and infrastructure, state-of-the-art connectivity, both physical and virtual, 
and very high livability in order to attract investments and to grow business opportunities and to make this a great home. The next challenge is really to mitigate climate change. There is increasing occurrence of extreme weather events and rising sea levels, and all would directly threaten the world's cities. But some people don't believe in climate change. So let's look at what are the changes that's happening to the world. These are a series of time series of pictures taken from NASA. And this is the atmospheric CO2 in 202 and what it is in 2016. This is the temperature increase since 1884. And this is the Arctic Sea ice shelf in 1979, but a lot of it has melted. This is what it is today. So many leaders are concerned with climate change, and there's been a lot of discussion. Well, probably not all leaders. <laughs> Fifteen of the world's largest cities are located in coastal zones threatened by sea level rise and storm surges. In the future, New York could look something like this. If you think it's not possible, well, look at what Hurricane Sandy did to New York recently. Quite frightening, right? Singapore is not exempted from climate change. According to Singapore's second national climate change study, there's been a general uptrend in annual rainfall. Uh, and it's increased by quite a bit from, 19, uh, in, from 1980 to 2014. The amount of rainfall has increased. And temperature could increase by 1.4 degrees centigrade to 4.6 degrees centigrade. And the sea level could rise by up to one meter by the end of the century. So what's the big deal? Sea level rise poses the most immediate threat. About 30% of our island is actually less than 5 metres above the mean sea level, and with much of the rest lying only 15 metres above mean sea level. Periods of drought can affect the reliability of our water supply. Sudden episodes of intense rain could lead to floods and overwhelm our drainage system. And a mean temperature increase of 1.5 to 2.5 degrees centigrade could affect the natural diversity of Singapore's plants and put animals to risk. Warmer temperatures mean that you can get more vector-borne diseases like dengue. And urban areas will become warmer, especially as we become more built up. And this induces the urban heat island effect and lead to heat stress. So the effects of climate change will also threaten global food security. And we buy most of our food from the world. So as we continue to urbanize, strengthening our resilience and finding solutions to protect our city from the effects of climate change become critical. Next, demographic trends. The world is getting older. If you look at this picture, from the light blue to the very dark blue, means the world is getting older. And it's a 2050. Singapore is getting older too. Singapore faced the twin demographic trends of declining birth rates and an aging population. Um, and I, I took some of these graphs actually from IPS. I, I thought they're quite frightening uh, graphs, you know. And unfortunately, our total fertility rate has fallen way below replacement rate since 1977. So by 2030, one in four people, or about 900,000 people, will be aged 65 and above. Maybe all of us here. Uh, double the number now. And as our population age, we need to enable the elderly to remain physically healthy, economically active, and engage with the community so they can stay independent for as long as possible. 
For me, because my profession is that of an architect planner, we have to design the physical environment for a more elderly society using universal design principles and helping them to be able to move around easily. Technology trends. We are in the midst of a technology revolution that's changing how we live, the way we work and relate to each other. The new technologies, actually they're limitless, there's so many, but I've just selected a few that impact more directly how cities are planned, developed and managed. So first, Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, wrote that we are now undergoing a fourth industrial revolution. Recent advances in information and uh, communications such as cloud computing, sensor networking, they've all made it easier for the Internet of Things to acquire, to organize and process vast amounts of information. The information can be used to monitor and to control urban systems and advance the efficiency and outreach of urban services. It also helps citizens to become more informed and involved and it will radically change how cities and homes are managed. Now, for example, the smart home market, Apple released its self-installed smart home ecosystem called Apple Home. And Google launched Google Home in 2016 with voice-activated smart home speakers. So when you go home, you just talk to your house or your apartment. These solutions deliver very innovative building automation and energy management uh, systems, right? You can turn on the aircon when you're at work. You don't have to wait till you go home. Switch on the lights. And this maximizes comfort, environmental quality, and sustainability. And artificial intelligence will enable intelligent systems to collaborate effectively with people and to teach robots through machine learning. Pervasive robotic technology will provide indispensable support ev to everyday life in services, industry, military, construction, and medical applications. I don't know if you've seen this picture, robot hotel. I think it's in Japan. You show up and the robot greets you. Now, human augmentation technology is also increasingly used, especially in Japan, in healthcare as the population ages. Artificial intelligence will dramatically transform the way we live, work, move, play, and we need to be ready for such a future. The future of mobility. Digitization and real-time information will make vehicular traffic more efficient and allow an unprecedented monitoring of urban mobility. We have autonomous vehicles, not just cars, but they will transport goods and people more efficiently and safely than manned vehicles. Each new autonomous vehicle is projected to replace the 10 cars some people say 14, thus elevating road congestion. And if there are electric vehicles, we can reduce the use of oil and attendant greenhouse gases by 71%. So this is the dream. We can read the newspapers while the car self-drives. And maybe even our dog can take the wheel. So that's the dream, right? Now, airborne vehicles are also being explored in several countries. Okay. This is uh, your favorite pet. Airborne vehicles are also being explored in several countries. And in 2016, Amazon famously patented a flying warehouse to dispatch drones from the sky. So imagine you're watching a football match and you order a hot dog and the drones come down and deliver that to you. So another recent patent uh, they proposed is a hive-like fulfillment center for drones. 
These multi-layered warehouses will occupy less land and optimize urban areas. Unmanned area vehicles can be programmed to deliver items such as food and medicine to homes, maybe even pizzas. They communicate with the power grid. They can gather information about traffic, flooding, and other very helpful information. And drones facilitate last mile delivery and may lead to a blurring of line between retail and logistics space by holding warehousing and delivery functions. Drones could one day be used to transport people too. In fact, Uber is partnering NASA on its flying taxi project called Uber Elevate, which they are aiming to trial in Los Angeles, Dubai, and Dallas-Fort Worth in 2020. So such new technologies for movement will require us to rethink, how do we plan the city? Can we free up more road space? Can we reduce the number of car parks and repurpose them for other users? And urban logistics will transform with AV trucks delivering goods at off-peak hours, maybe no more trucks on the road when we drive eh? or take our AV car. On the other hand, there could be potential congestion because there are lots of last-mile smaller deliveries arising from e-commerce. So in addition to roads, we may now need to set up new regulations and pathways for drones to fly safely in the city. Now, if we think that all this is just a dream, let me just show you this. Before Uber... Uh, sorry, before Amazon even talked about the uh, flying uh, warehouse, people were already experimenting with this. example, before aerial package delivery entered our social consciousness, an autonomous fleet of flying machines built a six-meter-tall tower composed of 1,500 bricks in front of a live audience at the Frac Center in France. And several years ago, they started to fly with ropes. By tethering flying machines, they can achieve high speeds and accelerations in very tight spaces. They can also autonomously build tensile structures. Skills learned include how to carry loads, how to cope with disturbances, and in general, how to interact with the physical world. So, it's quite real. Technology-enabled platforms like smartphone and websites will also make possible what is now called an on-demand or sharing economy. These platforms can match supply and demand in very accessible and low-cost ways, and they create many new ways of consuming goods and services. For example, Airbnb, we're all very familiar with Airbnb. They facilitate the renting out of homes for transit stay. They now have 150 million guests. And of course, all this threatens the hotel and hospitality sectors. Uber, Grab, and Didi Chusing in China have completely disrupted traditional taxi transport. Actually, Didi operates 25 million daily rides, driven by around 4 million drivers in China. And the collection of data by their drivers enable them to use artificial intelligence to even predict where riders are likely to want their cars 15 minutes ahead of time. And they can guess it right 85% of the time and even learn the preferences of its passengers. Quite remarkable. Now, what will the future of work be like? I know that now I can wear my jeans to work and I don't have to bring my briefcase. Well, in London, co-working spaces in 2016 account for some 88.8% of the total take-up of space, and this demand is growing. As workspaces can now be optimised and shared through co-working and flexible rental, actually there will soon be less use for traditional office space. So your current sector definitions of office, retail, industrial space, they all become very blurred. And uh, there will be a lot of mixed users co-locating together. And that's the trend. 
And developers and planners really need to become much more flexible and inventive to cater to these changes. And of course, we all know about the growth of online shopping. And I'm sure many people here do shop online. To attract footfall, stores now have to be experiential. They have to be an experiential hub that provide entertainment and community offerings. So you don't just go and buy coffee, you know, it's an experience to go and buy coffee. Apple, of course, is the leader in this strategy. This is Apple's latest store in Dubai. Its stores are always packed with consumers, testing products, interacting with their store associates. Apple has even renamed its stores as Town Squares, where people can get together for events, classes, and entertainment. So you don't just go and buy a computer. At the same time, you get a lot of online retailers like Alibaba and Amazon to, uh, who adopt an offline presence by opening stores and pop-up spaces to test markets to get product feedback. The idea is to link online and offline. And you understand what your customer wants online, and then you allocate the product they want in the physical offline store. This is uh, actually Alibaba's Tao's pop-up cafe. It is cashier-free. You scan the QR code on Taobao at the entrance of the store. When you walk in, they track you using facial recognition. And after going through uh, the checkout doors, the customer will automatically make a purchase through the smartphones without paying uh, at the checkout counter. In fact, they don't have checkout counters. And they can then leave the store with the items. So online shopping will change the logistics sector as the industry needs to get parcels delivered very quickly to buyers. And in fact, we may have to allocate space for buyers to collect and return their parcels. Geo-socialization has been cited as the next trend in social networking. Geographic services and capabilities just as, such as geocoding and geotagging, they will allow social networks to connect users with people or events that match their interests. So it's a much more customized way of networking. So for example, people can join in a group chat at a sports event. Maybe all of you sitting here can join in a group chat because of your proximity. Your mobile phone can point out interesting places, shops and restaurants, based on data on your user preference. And they will also tell you uh, where is the discounts if you go to some of these restaurants. Now, the social trend will give rise to new trends in digital marketing, socialization and uh, networking, using virtual reality and augmented reality. Pokemon Go brought augmented reality into the mainstream, and Google's Tango platform, Lenovo's Fab2, smartphones AR features allow the phone to see and to map the world around you. Alibaba actually has launched a virtual reality store called BuyPlus that allows shoppers to wander a virtual reality mall complete with big name stores. Hi, and welcome to Macy's, the largest department store.
好听。So he has a very happy girlfriend, and he can shout at Macy's while he's in China. So such technology really further reduced the need for people to shop in a physical store. Uh, well, from a social perspective, all this social networking actually require planners to redefine who your neighbour is, because you really have to think of new ways to build and to bond communities because it's virtual, right? So these trends are all converging on Singapore. What should be our urban response so that we can continue to be livable, resilient, and dynamic? In this lecture, I'd like to raise some issues for us to think about. And I appreciate that many of these issues are already being studied by the various government agencies. But by highlighting more holistically many of the ongoing efforts and through a sharing of ideas, I really hope to contribute to a greater awareness of what it takes to better anticipate and prepare Singapore for a better urban future. Where are we today? I highlighted in my first lecture that successful cities have all shifted away from this traditional blueprint plans to a very long-term strategic planning approach. Well, so have we. Long-term planning is critical for Singapore to ensure that we have sufficient land to meet our development needs. We have very little room to make mistakes. We now formulate concept plans, which are strategic plans with a long-term perspective of 40 to 50 years. And such plans focus on the strategic broad strokes huh, rather than details. They safeguard land for all the major land users, especially uh, for transportation, and it's meant to support our growth in the future. The concept plan is reviewed roughly every 10 years to keep pace with changing needs. And so far, we've done four concept plans. Uh, and uh, in 1971, 1991, 2001, and 2011. So we've done four. And I'm sure URA is looking at uh, the next one currently. The concept plan is then cascaded to a statutory detailed master plan. It has a shorter time horizon of about 15 years. And the master plan maps, maps out the detailed land users. Much more detail, all right? It gives you the plot ratio, density allowable, and it's reviewed every five years. And you need this plan. Uh, it's legislated because it provides uh, transparency and certainty, particularly to businesses, and it levels the playing field for everyone because everyone knows the plan. And there are also many phase medium plans to work out so that it helps decision makers make the necessary trade-offs between competing land users and it helps us to prioritise our infrastructure investments. The formulation of the concept plan is actually a very complicated exercise and requires a whole of government effort to develop such a plan. So you have many inter-ministry committees formed and the recent formation of the Prime Minister's Office Strategy Group is also timely to better identify and coordinate the whole of government priorities early and to translate them into policy plans. So this whole of government effort is critical uh, because there are a lot of trade-offs to be made because more land resource for one use means less for another. So going forward, what might be some of the strategies we can consider for our future? So let me just raise some for consideration. Singapore is in transition into early middle age. I call it early middle age. As our island becomes more built up in the next few decades and we have no hinterland to expand into, how can we secure land for future development once most of our land is used up? Well, I would like to introduce 
the idea of what I call the adaptive life cycle planning, a concept of creating a virtual cycle of land recovery, thus enabling the constant rejuvenation of Singapore for future generations. Let me expand on this concept. Similar to many cities, as we become built up over time, we are left with more brownfield rather than greenfield sites. And we will have to progressively shift into an urban redevelopment or regeneration mode. As an island city-state limited by our territorial waters, available land for new development will come mainly from recycling existing land and properties. So given this, perhaps our long-term planning horizon should be stretched beyond the concept plan 40 to 50 years to even 100 years. I have a lot of URE colleagues here listening to this. Some may say that this proposal runs counter to the need to be flexible in a very uncertain world. But I would argue that life cycle planning would stretch our imagination and open us to future possibilities. Because if we think sufficiently long term, the fixed constraints today, even large existing developments like airports, they will be sufficiently depreciated in the longer term to allow for ma many major moves in our plans. And this will capture opportunities for potential redevelopment beyond the economic and useful lifespan of existing buildings and infrastructure. Nothing lasts forever. And by doing so, we can secure land for rejuvenation to meet the needs of future generations. So it's important to take this longer term view because by taking a longer term view, it also means that we can factor in the investments, which will be costly for infrastructure, so that we can build up our fiscal resources over time. We have time to save and to build up resources. And of course, these plans have to be dynamic. They will have to change and respond as and when we need to. Our system of leasehold land is a key enabler for such land rejuvenation to take place. For example, industrial land, which are generally 30 to 60 year leases, can be recovered when the lease ends, and the land can then be reused to meet new needs and to support new economic thrusts in the next cycle of the lease of the land. This is not new. We see many successful examples in the world. Uh, in my first lecture, I talked about Bilbao and even London. There are examples where port land which are no longer needed are being redeveloped for new commercial, residential, and cultural uses. So is London. I think those of you who are familiar with the London Docklands. They've been building for the last three decades and continues to be rejuvenated. We are also relocating part of our port after some 50 years. PSA announced last year that it will be moving its Tanjung Paga terminal to Pasir Panjang and eventually to the Tuas Megaport. And this shift will eventually free up much of the southern waterfront for future development, for residential, for housing, commercial users, leisure, recreational, social users. In another example, the move of the Paya Lebar Air Base to Changi in the future will free up 800 hectares for new development. These musical chair moves are an essential strategy for rejuvenating our physical landscape. But to make changes to these spatial patterns, we have to plan well ahead of time and a few large pockets of land need to be safeguarded to initiate these big moves. So this is the new Tuas Megaport when the final port moves there. Next, being adaptable, what does that mean? 
It means that we should factor in modularity and flexibility into our plans because the future is very uncertain. Even though we have safeguarded a large tract of land in Tuas for our port, for example, it could be phased. You don't have to build everything all at once in case the demand for port activities, as seen here, do not pan out as we envisage. So you don't really have to build it all at one go. Building flexibility also means that we need to plan for a larger population. Dr. Liu Taiker has advocated planning for a projected population of 10 million. I'm sure all the eyebrows will go up here. He has supporters, he has detractors, and he's generated a lot of debate, his view. Well, whatever it is, there continues to be much discussion on what might be the appropriate population figure. Um, I think this largely depends on whether we can find very innovative urban solutions which can safeguard our good living environment and the level of acceptance by people. But regardless of public sentiments, I speak as an architect planner, it is wise to plan scenarios with varying population size because it will help us to anticipate the types of infrastructure that will be needed, the type of densities we should build on available land, and to work through the many difficult trade-offs in competing users for land. If the population growth does not materialize, well, we have a happy situation of having more land buffers set aside and more choices in the use of land. Next is about developing no regrets, land and infrastructure. When the future demand is so uncertain, how do we provide hard infrastructure which once built just cannot be changed? Well, one strategy is to plan for and invest in selected no regrets infrastructure upfront, even if it might result in some redundancy and sub-optimization. One example is the MRT rail network. Planning for more rail lines in anticipation of a larger population would enable us to safeguard land for the rail corridors before the city gets more built up. In fact, this is not new, you know. Our long-term planning approach has actually enabled us to safeguard many of the land corridors for many of our MRT lines since the 1970s. That's why you can get your MRT. So sizing up front for a larger capacity is another consideration because once the capacity of a railway line or MRT is specified, any change becomes very, very extremely costly. Another example is land creation. Where possible, we should build up a land bank because in Singapore's context, more land is better than less land. An illustration of very good planning foresight of my predecessors is the reclamation of Marina Bay since the 1970s. And because they reclaimed the land, it alleviated the growth pressure on the existing city. And this has enabled us to conserve many of our historic districts. If not, we would face a lot of urban pressures. But the extent to which we can reclaim land is also limited by our territorial boundaries, balanced with the need to preserve sea space to support our port functions. So this is not the only way. We have to think of many other ways. Another way is we could look at more underground space, and JTC has done this and trout this quite successfully in the, uh, by doing up the uh, Jurong subterranean caverns for liquid storage. Uh, there are opportunities in Singapore which we can explore. For example, Kenridge or Science Park, or maybe NUS underneath. I think you have pretty good soil. Uh, you could consider underground construction. And I, I believe URA is currently developing an underground master plan, which I read somewhere. They say that they will announce it in 2019. 
You know, we could actually consider also decking over large swaths of transport infrastructure, such as highways and over MRT depots, which take up extensive tracts of land. There are many successful examples. This is a beautiful park in Dallas called the Clyde Warren Park. It's actually built over a highway, if you look carefully. The highway actually runs underneath. Beautiful park, a much beloved open space in the city. The Millennium Park in Chicago and the Hudson's Yard in, uh, development in New York, which is currently the largest development in New York, they all straddle over a working rail yard. And you could co-locate users together to save land. So the East Coast Integrated Depot, uh, which has been announced, is a 36-hectare, 3.2 billion depot, and it's built to house 220 trains for multiple lines, the Thompson East Coast Line, the East West Line, and the Downtown Line. It is the world's first, and the depot will house 550 buses as well. So multiple levels to save land. And by integrating all this, uh, the government expects to save 44 hectares of land. That's about 60 football fields. So quite uh, something to think about. The strategy is really about using capital and technology to overcome our limitations in land. Of course, it's easy to say, because the challenge is to find the right economic model to justify these very expensive investments. Having said that, it doesn't mean we can't do it, because I remember when I was developing Marina Bay, uh, we managed to make a, a strong case to sink the Marina Coastal Expressway underground, because it would free up a lot of prime land and further enhance land value, because more land can now have direct access to the waterfront. So planners need to be extremely innovative to think of very strong economic arguments to create this type of land. Now, being adaptable is also about building in more flexibility to zoning regulations. Again, when I was developing Marina Bay, we introduced the white site. What is the white site? No, white, white color, what does it mean? Well, basically, we stipulated a minimum floor space, uh, say, for a hotel, and then we left it to the market to determine the type of use according to demand. And the type of use could also be changed over time according to demand of the day. More white sites could be considered as URA opens up mixed-use areas like in the Jurong Lake District. And recently, I think URA also introduced a very innovative approach uh, for the new Pongo Digital District. This district will be for digital and cybersecurity industries. And the zoning rules would be applied at the district level instead of on an individual parcel of land, giving developers more flexibility for mixed users. I think this is a really good idea. So just as cities need to be adaptive, actually architects need to design their buildings to be as flexible as possible. There are some architects here in the audience. You have to size your floor plates with a reasonable size, and you have to have sufficient ceiling height and uh, for greater flexibility so that it can be repurposed. Google's new Mountain View headquarters comprise a series of really giant glass domes. And uh, they're just big domes you know, in this site. And underneath, they can fit and change any structures that they want, making completely programmable for any eventual use. So next, I want to talk about the need to build integrated, resilient, and intelligent infrastructure. Many mature cities are aging. They suffer from a huge infrastructure gap. London's infrastructure development body formulated a 1.3 trillion pound London infrastructure plan 2050 because they want to cater for a population growth of 
another 3.1 million. This plan creates an integrated vision for London, encompassing sectors such as transport, green infrastructure, digital connectivity, water, energy, and social infrastructure. And interestingly, London also has an independent national infrastructure commission, which advises the government on infrastructure development. They carry out assessments on the state of infrastructure. They take a very strategic approach by linking long-term priorities with short-term actions so that infrastructure is seen as a system and not as a collection of silos. So today, based on the concept plan projections, already individual agencies work very hard to make provision for key infrastructure, such as those for transport, water, energy generation, and waste management. But going forward, there could be even more scope for closer integration of the various modes of infrastructure so that we can reap greater synergies between them. You know, we have to think about infrastructure as integrated urban systems to optimize the outcomes rather as individual services. As a small island city-state, we must work towards, I advocate, three principles in our infrastructure provision. It's to favor a circular rather than a linear model. It's to adopt an integrated multifunctional rather than a single function urban system and to build resilient and intelligent urban infrastructure. What does all this mean? Well, one of the best examples of a circular system is the way POB has successfully closed the water loop. I think I will not go too much into this. We all know. Today, Singapore is really designed as one giant rainwater absorbing sponge. Is Singapore the sponge city? Because PUB has developed a whole network of drains and canals and underground storage tanks to capture the rainfall. And after that, what do they do? Through the introduction of the deep tunnel sewage system, PUB captures all used water and is recycling it into new water, most of which is used by industry that it requires very clean water. Perhaps we should have served clean water, new water outside. It's a tip for IPS. In our stormwater management, we have started to green our grey infrastructure. What do we do? Because we convert concrete canals to absorbent green spaces and wetlands for flood mitigation. Of course, the most famous example is the Bishan Amokyo Park. And HDB is turning a lot of the parks and ponds in Bidadari and Tenga into ponds and using greenery to hold back water discharge after heavy rain. That's the subject of the third lecture. And in addition, all these plants actually help you to clean the water before they're discharged into drains and reservoirs. And actually, as a result, you can reduce the cost of water purification. So our urban infrastructure must add as a network of elements, all right, multifunctional, very important for us. Just to give you an example, this is Rotterdam. Certain neighbourhoods are as low as six metres below sea level. And they pioneered the construction of facilities like parking garages. They become emergency reservoirs. Its dikes at Dark Park are integrated with other land users, such as a shopping centre and a parking garage, enabling the integrated facility to build one of the largest roof parks in Rotterdam. So on top of all this is a 1.1 kilometre long roof park much loved by the city. So similarly, you can have a multifunctional strategy when we carry out, say, land reclamation. So for instance, um, I took this from the concept plan, 
when you reclaim land, now this is not the final form of the reclamation. This is just an example that I took from a, a, a plan from URA. When you reclaim, you could actually be quite clever in the reclamation. You can double up as a dam, and then it becomes a coastal protection measure for the East Coast. And then inside, you can collect water. And the reclamation can be shaped to create more inland water bodies, where heavy rainfall can then be channeled uh, to prevent floods, and then it becomes a freshwater storage reservoir. So they also these water bodies also create very beautiful waterfront conditions, you know, so that you can have more waterfront housing and recreation. Next important principle is really to strengthen waste energy and the water nexus. We must really try to combine energy, waste and water because they have potential to provide benefits across multiple city systems. So closed loop system, right? This is Hammerby in Sweden. I don't know how many have visited it. It's a beautiful little town. They reuse waste heat from wastewater and they also adopt extensive use of solar panels to generate energy. The biogas derived from sewage is used for cooking. So they have a promotional campaign which features the tagline from toilet to omelette. <laughs> I love this tagline. We have to think of a better tagline for ourselves, right? Yeah, we love that. Haven't tried the omelette there yet, but right. So although PUB can recycle used water, but it actually takes up a lot of energy. So we haven't quite closed that loop, right? So how do we solve the energy problem? Well, in the latest PUB NEA collaboration, they've done a really great job. They're embarking on a 9.5 billion project, and it comprised one part PUB's Twas Water Reclamation Plant, and they co-locate with NEA's integrated waste management facility. So essentially, the electricity that is generated from incinerating the trash at the integrated waste management facility is supplied to the Tuas Waste Reclamation Plant for its operations. And the reclamation plant will purify the used water, they trans which is transported from the deep tunnel sewage system into new water. And at the same time, the dewatered sludge from the Tuas Water Reclamation Plant, they burn it. And when they burn it, they generate electricity and energy. Okay, so food waste and water sludge then will be co-digested through a process called anaerobic digestion, where the microorganisms convert the waste into biogas to enhance the overall thermal efficiency and electricity production at the Integrated Waste Management Facility. So quite a wonderful twinning of the two facilities together. The combination of engineering and data would enable a much more intelligent approach to infrastructure. We have advances in sensors, controls and software to increase intelligence and transparency, providing the right information at the right time for informed decisions. With artificial intelligence, we can move beyond normal monitoring of uh, services you know, towards predictive maintenance. You can even predict whether a facility may fail before it fails. I'm going to talk about that in my third lecture in greater detail. And with the, the new technology, there's more integ integration. Information can be shared across systems and organizations to eliminate silos and to optimize performance. Now, today, Singapore's infrastructure ecosystem is efficient. 
but maybe there's room for it to be fully optimized. The above linkages I, I gave as examples between various infrastructure systems suggest that there may be merit to consider the development of a national infrastructure plan. And this ensures that our long-term plans are supported by timely infrastructure, which takes a systems approach. And such a plan would help to further identify opportunities to synergize the various urban systems, food, energy, waste, water, transport, greenery, and to close the material and energy cycles to create a circular ecosystem. Next point is about delivering well-managed and livable density. We have a growing population and living densities will increase. But we need not fear densification if it is done well. Denser and compact cities use less energy. They are more walkable. They help make public transport options, waste disposal and management services much more viable and efficient to operate. So for example, it's more viable to run an MRT here than in Los Angeles because our Los Angeles is sprawling. That's why everybody drives. It's in the suburbs. You can't run a rail line. It's not viable. So, this is not to say that we densify without thought. It's about very deliberate and good spatial planning and good design strategies. And you can continue to make a city highly livable. So how to create livable density? In Concept Plan 1991, we actually already started adopting a decentralization strategy called the Constellation Concept, where we decentralize a lot of uh, the commercial growth from the city into other areas so that you don't congest the city. Otherwise, everybody goes to work only in the city. So as a result, you now have things like Tampines Regional Centre and many of the commercial centres like Novena or Paya But there is still a very high uh, movement of one-way travel across the island towards the central area and towards the west region during the peak hours because that's where all the factories are in the west. So URA and LTA are stepping up decentralization efforts. And then as we have more housing in the north, in Woodlands, in Pongol, in Jurong, you can actually spread more of these centers out. And especially now that we're going to have the high-speed rail terminal in Jurong Lake, URA is looking into building a new major western commercial node. So this decentralization will continue. But it also frees up a lot of land in the central area when the port moves out to uh, Tuas and frees up a lot of land for other new developments. We really have to rethink the way we move around, you know, our urban mobility. We have all along adopted a transit-oriented approach by encouraging the use of public transport. Actually, Singapore was one of the first cities to put in place measures like the COE, right? Electronic road pricing to moderate car growth. So we were very advanced, considered very advanced. But today, nonetheless, roads still take up about 12% of our land, almost as much as 14% of land use for housing. That's a lot. And to keep increasing the car population is just not sustainable. In fact, our private transport mode share is high at 34% when you compare to Seoul, which is 23%, Tokyo, 12%, Hong Kong, 12% where most people use public transport. So LTAs, of course, have to set a target, and they are trying to change the public uh, transport mode share to increase it to 75% by 2030. So we must pursue really alternative modes beyond the car. 
In an interview in 2017, Ford CEO Mark Fields, note Ford, eh, this is Ford, he said that the future of cities has almost nothing to do with cars. Imagine the Ford CEO standing here and saying that. I think I'll lose my job. Well, the real problem, he said, is how to prepare for a future in which people prefer to get around using all different modes of transportation, driverless cars, ride-sharing, train, bus, bicycle, and on foot. So for Singapore, we are also pushing towards a car-like society. The idea is to shift increasingly to what we call mobility as a service, rather than all of us owning cars individually. And LTA is piloting car sharing and AV cars to yield greater efficiency and safety. Uh, and car parking supply has already been tightened, particularly in the city core. Of course, a car -like policy will need to be supported by alternative, affordable and convenient modes of transport. So LTA is really investing very heavily in rail. They're doubling their rail network. And they've already added on a larger fleet of about 1,000 buses. And for example, um, if you look recently at the LTA North-South Corridor, the design of this North-South Expressway will have dedicated bus lanes and a cycling route. Uh, in fact, all the cars will be, uh, will be pushed down and they give priority to, uh, the vehicles will be underground and they give priority to buses and to cyclists. Well, we will still be developing many kilometers of cycling just to promote car light and to make it much more uh, pedestrian friendly and walkable and for cycling as an alternative mode. And in 2017, LTA passed the Active Mobility Bill to allow the use of bicycles and personal mobility devices on public paths. paths. And of course, now we have bike sharing. Now, I know it is really still early days to conclude whether cycling will take off in a big way and whether we can get the cyclists, the pedestrian and the drivers to coexist harmoniously. Right? But in the meantime, we will continue to build cycling networks to try and make it as safe as possible. To further reduce congestion, there's also a need to explore sustainable urban logistics. JTC is looking at incorporating a central distribution centre at the Jurong Innovation District where goods are stored and handled and they have a dedicated road network for the delivery of goods to companies. This is being designed and built and I think it will be quite state-of-the-art when it's done. Now, the government is also looking into an island-wide federated parcel locker network to ease the last mile delivery challenge. Many of you buy online and the goods get delivered to your home, right? But that may not be the most efficient. Uh, I built HDB estates and actually it may be more efficient to have uh, parcel lockers underneath the blocks where people can go and collect their parcels. So this is what it's about. And even NTUC has this thing called the click and collect locker. And the locker comes in refrigerated storage to keep your milk and cheese cold. Don't know about the fish. <laughs> we have to ask them. And there is likely to be an increasing use of unmanned aerial vehicles. All right? For example, Airbus Skyways project aims to provide efficient, seamless delivery of small parcels via drones across NUS. So next time you come, you may see drones flying around. Now, all these initiatives actually require us to think about cities in three dimensions, no more just on the road, you know. We have to find safe pathways and landing for the UAV and regulations to ensure safety. 
So NTU is actually developing a traffic management system for drones called the Traffic Management of Unmanned Aircraft Systems. They have air lanes that are designated by using what they call virtual fences to reroute the drones around restricted geographical locations. And uh, you might have heard that one north will be designated as Singapore's first drone estate. And to, in anticipation of more drones, Singapore has introduced the Unmanned Aircraft Public Safety and Security Bill in 2016, which aims to regulate the use of drones with a clear set of rules. So next is about building a city of greenery and water. I think our, there are lots of parks in Singapore, you know, and I think our end parks and our agencies have done a pretty good job. There are 360 parks and counting. We have urban parks, we have nature areas, we have the new Jurong Lake Gardens, which will be the first national garden within the heartlands. So I'm very happy with that. And we're always constantly creating the illusion of space. This is how you mitigate density. Now, I, I am the illusionist too, when I was in the URA, right? We had these few hills, you know, uh, Mount Faber was one of them, and Kenridge leading to here. And on their own, they were very tiny parks. So we say, so how do we create virtual space? So we decided to link up these parks with very beautiful bridges like this. And we designed these bridges, we linked up the park, and suddenly you have a very long park because it's a few kilometers. Otherwise, it's just a little park, say, in Mount Faber. If you haven't gone onto this trail, please do so. This is a short advertisement. Beautiful bridge. I love this bridge. And of course, the rail corridor will soon become another well-loved space. I'm very excited about this. And in my first lecture, I talked about the High Line. Actually, the High Line is very short, you know. But the rail corridor is several kilometers. And if we develop this, you just imagine, you know, you could link the rail corridor with many attractions and historic areas, maybe even the best hawker centers in my HDB towns, and uh, food havens, biodiversity areas. It would really be a very creative way to expand our leisure space multifold in this very small island. And at the building level, I think URA has got a lot of incentives for us to build upwards, to build towards the sky with the LUSH program, and people respond to this. Many architects, very innovative. They brought a lot of sky-rise greenery into their buildings. And we soon have a return of nature to our city in a garden. Now, this picture, where do you think it was taken? No price. Okay, well, I took it one morning when I was taking a walk at Gardens by the Bay. This is not Sungai Bulo or somewhere, you know. It is actually in Gardens by the Bay. And the, uh, and the biodiversity came back. All the bird watchers were, were there. So I'm really, really happy. I think MPARCS and uh, Gardens by the Bay did a really good job. Now, there's one thing that I thought maybe we could do more of is to increase the amount of food by maybe having more uh, urban farms. Eh? Uh, recently, MPARCS has announced it will encourage more people to adopt edible gardening, and I'm very supportive. And in the planning, for example, in the Tengah New Town that I'm planning, I'm going to weave in a lot of large leaner greens and encourage the community to take up more urban farms. Lecture three. <laughs> <coughs> okay, now, livable density is also about developing a people city. <coughs> we have to develop identity, image, and great environmental quality, right? And we can shape the city using what I call 
urban design, in the way you place your buildings, public spaces. We can shape the city beautifully. And uh, we can put in a lot of beautiful public spaces and promote placemaking and programming to encourage greater vibrancy and community interaction, such as Marina Bay. And we've done a lot. You can go and fly kites at the Barrage, you know. You have the night festival in the Civic District. So very beautiful, and some people were doing yoga, you know, in the uh, Marina Bay. So that's nice to see. And I can tell you there are many, many wonderful spaces, even within the HDB towns, that we we um, help to activate, and they're very vibrant. A people-focused city is also about conserving heritage and identity. If you attended the first talk, I also talked about this, right? It's the importance of identity and heritage. And many of the successful cities do this very well. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail. You might have questions on this. But I think given the small size that we are, we're not bad. We have conserved more than 7,000 buildings and structures. And much of it is in big districts, not singular buildings. But I think we can do a lot better in terms of coordination and design of street and urban infrastructure. People experience a city from the street, right? Because we all walk around the street. So I appeal for greater attention to be paid to the quality of design of our public spaces and urban infrastructure. Increasingly, our urban infrastructure is creeping into our crowded streetscape, and if we're not careful, it will mar the visual experience of our city. Careful attention must be paid to the design of large urban structures. We are, we are having more numbers of ventilation buildings, MRT stations and entrances. There are also miles of overhead ramps, pedestrian bridges, lingways, multiple signage that crop up along the street. We really need to bring some order to these. As you experience the city, as I say, from the street. Is it possible? Can we do it? Well, we can take a leave out of cities that have lovingly nurtured a design culture that looks at all aspects of public infrastructure. I showed this slide in my first lecture. Bilbao commissioned Norman Foster to build the signature Fosteritos. Uh, very beautiful. Become a brand for Bilbao. Barcelona has attractive boulevards such as the St. John Boulevard. The scale and design of the sidewalks, trees, signages, lampposts, street furniture are all beautifully coordinated. Good design doesn't have to be expensive. We just need to put some thought into careful design before we build. That's the architect in me speaking. Now, reimagining the city from the internet up. In a recent visit to New York, I met up with Sidewalk Labs. This is Alphabet Company's Smart City Incubator. They imagine, design, test, and build urban innovations to help cities. Eh? And the stated goal is reimagining cities from the internet up. I borrowed this phrase. Well, Singapore too has our smart nation ambition. So this is one of those cures, you know, they have where you can uh, get a lot of information from the sidewalks, a lot of data and information. Singapore too has our smart nation ambition and as a small integrated city state, we're actually very well poised to harness smart technology in a very big way. For a start, the intention is to focus on five key domains that will have significant impact on the citizen and society and they cover transport, home and environment, business productivity, health and ageing and government services. Now, there are many, many applications now being developed. I'm just going to cover a few which I thought is quite interesting. Eh? 
thinking about the city. One is, of course, my colleagues in LTA, they're doing a lot of smart transport. With more than 1 million vehicles on the road and 4 million daily bus rides, smart technology can help to optimise the use of our limited space for more efficient, safe, reliable and enhanced transportation. So they now have these things called mobility on, mobility on demand pilots, such as the Delphi Automotive System and Newtonomy, which is being piloted at One North. And LTA will be introducing self-driving buses into my towns soon. So we'll have to work with them. And uh, self-driving vehicles also hold very great potential for freight transportation. And of course, LTA has analyzed a lot of anonymized data for your, from your commuter fare card so that they help them to manage the bus fleets so that they know whether the bus is very full or not, whether they should put more buses on the road. And of course, we will have a next generation electronic road pricing. I know you don't like that, but it's essential. And for home and the environment, the HDB is developing a smart town framework. I won't go into this, it will be in lecture three. <laughs> and uh, of course, you could do a lot with uh, also health and enabling aging using smart technology. I will touch a little bit on that in my third lecture. So, the next point I'd like to make is about moving from digital age to engage. You know, all the technical professionals, including me, eh, and policy makers, we pursue we can pursue the latest technological advances and the latest smart, cool applications to better manage the city. But we must remember that ultimately, we are planning for our people and our citizens. A more participatory approach to planning is needed to help us to better understand what our citizens want and whether our plans are meeting their needs. A co-creation process really helps to harness ideas and enterprise from the community and promote joint ownership. I shared a lot about the examples of some other cities like Seoul and New York, which have done this very well in my first lecture. And you know, many of the proposed initiatives will not be successful without the support and cooperation of people. For example, while the transport experts can pronounce, let's go car light, but we need to persuade everyone to leave their car at home and to switch to alternative modes of transport. We introduce more cycling and personal mobility devices on the road. But ultimately, there needs to be consideration between cyclists and PMD users and pedestrians so that we can exist harmoniously. We can say, oh, let's have a low carbon and climate resilient society. But how are we going to achieve this circular economy? How can we reduce waste? How do we recycle waste? Green cities actually require green citizens, you know. We have to paint ourselves green, who have a sustainability ethos ingrained in their daily lives. I said this in my first lecture. Maybe now you have the answer. In Yokohama, how many types of trash do they sort into? Oh, A star, you see, because you attended the first lecture. 15, right? We are still struggling to get people to reduce waste and to recycle. So really much needs to be done to work with people and our citizens to be more mindful of our own personal use of energy, water, and resource. And I think that is a lot of work to be done. All right, we have to work with citizens. And some of the agencies have actually done some rather innovative things, all right, getting 
people to give a lot of inputs, particularly for the rail corridor, which URA has done very well. Uh, what to do with public spaces? They converted car parks to public spaces. All right. I think the last point I'd like to make is about pursuing strong science and innovation. Research, innovation and technology is going to be critical for us to help find the right urban solutions. The Singapore government has committed some $19 billion for the Research, Innovation and Enterprise 2020 plan, funding it from 2016 to 2020. Of this, some $900 million has been set aside for urban solutions and sustainability. And in 2017, the MND has launched the Cities of Tomorrow R&D program, setting aside $150 million to fund research and development in building a more livable, sustainable and efficient city. So I think all these new solutions are going to be very important for us because um, urban problems become increasingly complex. But a city is not just about efficiency, engineering and technology. We've been very good at building hardware. But what areas of uh, R&D should we further pursue, apart from technology and scientific solutions? To answer this, I'm going to briefly outline what I see is the evolution of planning thought in Singapore over the years. Okay, so this is a strong science that I talked about. First, we started out as a garden city, and this was largely influenced by those who know Ebenezer Howard, that's his idea. We wanted to be a garden city, and it was really a reaction to very pollutive environments after the Industrial Revolution. And subsequently, we were influenced by modernism ideas led by architects like Le Corbusier and his ideas of high-density towers. Actually, HDB is a very good example. And then the city is viewed as a machine. And then you have things like zoning regulations and functionality. This is how it came about. Uh, much of what URA and HDB planning uh, has done seem to also have roots in this. But then people reacted to this mechanistic view, right? And they say, what happened to the people factor in the city? So this gave rise to new urbanism, where people wanted to humanize the city. Uh, and there were a lot of activists who supported this. Uh, Jane Jacobs is one of them, but not Professor Jane Jacobs. I know you're in the audience. Uh, and people wanted a more human scale, vibrant streets, walkability, public spaces for a more human city. And fortunately, Singapore did pay attention to this. And so we have actually made, in a way, modernism work by layering the functional city with very many people considerations. And as there were become more concerns with climate change, eh, we talk about sustainability and resilience. We start to think about all these things. And recently, there's increasing recognition of the city as a series of very complex urban systems. This requires us to understand how each urban system and infrastructure relate to each other, especially when I was talking about how do you get cities to think of itself as systems. This is necessary if we want a resilient city so that we don't want a single point of failure. You need to understand how systems are all linked to each other. Now, in a recent discussion I had with a group of very eminent experts on how we should develop and manage cities, uh, one of them made a very important point. He's actually Jeffrey West, who was the past president of the Santa Fe Institute, who is a real expert on complexity science. He said this, we must avoid the hegemony of infrastructure. 
What does that mean? It means that cities should not only be viewed as machines with a focus on efficiency and cost effectiveness through only engineering technology-based infrastructure solutions. Cities must be developed with a view towards clear societal goals and outcomes, such as achieving a good quality of life, building communities, and building a sustainable environment. Technology and infrastructure solutions are only enablers that should be framed within such goals. So our research agenda should put people at the centre and include things like behavioural science and social studies so that we understand the factors that could affect or drive human behaviour. So, for example, to guide the development of future transport plans, you really need to understand and, uh, why people travel in a certain pattern, right? And, be, and why that is linked to the choice of transport. If you want to build livable density, you must then ask what motivates uh, and influence well-being, both spatial and non-spatial. What type of activities and uh, what types of spaces are more likely to encourage better use and interaction? And beyond traditional data, we must shift, uh, which users say census and surveys, we need to shift towards harnessing big data, which we can collect through, whether it's a mobile phone, social media platforms and sensors, so that we can actually get better insights and understand people and to plan, design, and build better for them. So, a lot more things beyond just science and technology. We need to understand many other things. And these are all enablers. So, we are in an exciting time, where over the next few decades, there are many extensive development projects. They're all lined up. And these projects will give us many opportunities to test out new planning ideas, urban solutions, and technology. Well, given our small size and the availability of abundant data, we're actually in quite a unique position to lead in developing holistic solutions. And I, wa I want to say that we must dare to dream, and we need to dream audaciously. I'm old-fashioned. I believe in vision, you know. Without vision, you don't know where you're going, and you will not get there. And our ambition should not be limited by our size, because we have shown previously that we can be excellent a city isn't gauged by its length and width, but by the broadness of its vision and the height of its dreams. So this is important. With thoughtful planning, strong science and technology, and an innovative spirit, Singapore can continue to transform and shine as a rock star in urban solutions. Thank you. And just as Heng Chi is coming up, please. We can be a beautiful city, right? The third lecture is on the 23rd. <laughs> okay, come, Heng Well, thank you very much, uh, Kun Yen, for that uh, breathtaking, and I would say brilliant and comprehensive talk. What Kun Yen has done, Dr. Cheong has done, is to bring together, you know, in a very imaginative way, and to deconstruct for us what we need to think about when we talk of the urban future. 
And she's introduced in the same talk the kinds of developments that we have to take care of challenges, but also drivers, drivers of change. And uh, it's a lot for us to chew on. Now, she said a great deal of things. I'm sure you are ripe with questions. I will exercise the uh, prerogative of the chair to ask the first one. I have to say, Kunyan, I came with some simpler questions. But as you started talking, more and more questions came to my mind. I'll just uh, name one. You startled me when you said you want to start planning with a long horizon, a hundred years. And I said, are you serious? You know, because by the very drivers you name, technology, I don't think we can predict technology beyond even 20 years, 25 years. To talk of 100 years, I don't know what sort of technology will be with us. How do we live? The smartphone, 2007, completely changed the way we bang, the way we buy things, all kinds of things. The way you work, your office can be your cell phone. So what does it mean? The other thing is, because I'm a political scientist, uh, we plan for 50 years, you know, and I remember in the, in what we, in the conference we organized, Lee Kuan Yew and the trans physical transformation of Singapore, we learned that Mr. Lee, in fact, 50 years ago, decided to where Singapore, how Singapore was to be planned. This is where housing would be, this is where the airport would be, and this is the central business district. And I am told by planners, it's amazing how relevant and how applicable his basic plan has been. Now, 100 years is very different, you know. And in that last 50 years, we've seen British government, Japanese government, we were, you know, sort of trying to make our way to getting an independent future, then we became part of Malaysia, we came out of Malaysia, and now we are what we are. So what I'm saying is that, is it too ambitious to plan for 100 years? Yes, I was trying to be provocative. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, first maybe let me try and clarify. When you plan for 100 years, it doesn't mean you make one plan and then you stop. That's not the planning process, right? And in my first lecture, I actually talked a lot about it's not about, um, it's about, it's, it's not a planned city. It's about a city that continually plans. There is a difference. Because a planned city would be in a blueprint mode and we know within five years it's already outdated. But it's about the process of planning and it's about thinking very, very long term. I agree with you, uh, technology will change and you cannot predict, but I'm not asking people to predict. There are certain things that don't change so easily, you know. Your MRT lines, your well, roads can change a little easier, but MRT lines are very difficult. Your airports, your port, they're not so easy to change. Uh, your reservoirs, right? So if you look at Singapore, uh, the planning of Singapore, if you go back to when it was first done in the 60s and early 70s when Kunitzberger uh, through the United Nations came to help us with the plan, I know there's some planners in the room, if you look at the structure of that plan, it, 
it's still the same structure, you know, it hasn't changed that much. So some things, the backbone doesn't change that much. But there will be many changes, right? Whether, for example, maybe we don't need as much space as we thought we need. But then, given that Singapore, you're, you're talking about a country which is a city-state. If I were the United States of America or Australia, I wouldn't worry as much about it. You can just move to a new city. But we can't. So thinking ahead gives you potential levers to make very big moves. The airport, what is there to say that this airport that we're building now will not even move in the next 70 years? Even the new one that we're building, maybe, you know? I'm not, well, I'm not saying it's going to, I'm just saying maybe. So you, you need to be able to think ahead of the possibilities. Many people are very, feel very restricted about looking very far because they say, oh, the building is there, the road is there. But nothing lasts forever, right? Because a building will grow old and needs to be replaced. Uh, uh, from an economic point of view, every building and infrastructure will depreciate over time. They don't last forever. But given that you're a city-state, you don't have a hinterland where you can build as elsewhere, you do have to think about the recycling of land. I think that's what I'm saying. Even though you plan 100 years, I, I'm sure there'll be, if I plan every 10 years, you have at least 10 more concept plans. If you do every five years, it'll be 20 more concept plans. So you are continually planning, but you always have that long-term horizon. Two other very important things. If you want to do these musical chairs, you need to safeguard huge chunks of land so that you can move an entire chunk. That's one. Secondly, they are very expensive things to do. So you may not have the money now, but if you tell me that in 30 years I need to do this, then a, a good government will have to think about how to build up the resources for that to happen. And it happens because the port is moving. Paliba Airport is moving. So, it happened. We moved to Changi last time, remember? So I think that's what I'm trying to say. Thank you, Kunye. Now, um, I'm going to, in, you know, your talk was excellent and it ran, you know, uh, beyond the time. Sorry. But so, <laughs> uh, so what, and we didn't feel it, I should add. We didn't feel the length of it. Uh, what I would like to ask is, uh, you know, for the question, people to ask questions, but I will group your questions and take down the questions and uh, Dr. Cheong will answer two, three questions at the same time. All right, can we have the first from the floor? Yes, please. Good evening, Dr. Oh, can Cheong. Can you identify uh, yourself? I'm and Joseph Lau from, from Lord Architects. Uh, thank you for this inspiring sharing. Uh, this decking over the high highways is a great and interesting idea and looks like it's catching up in many countries. How about Singapore? For example, landscape deck over Orchard Road. Uh, we can create a lot of activities, just like you said, Dr. Chong. We should make places and not spaces. So we can create activities over airspace, which is free. And the area of Orchard Road, I think, is tremendous. It's a big area. And if we can build this landscape deck from one end to another, if it's proven to be successful, we can continue this idea to Little India, Praswasa, Shantanwe, and, and Chinatown. And I like your view, please. Thank you. Thank you. Is there a second question? This is about decking. Yes, over here. 
Name and your, where you're from, please. Good, good evening, Dr. Chung. My name is Brent. I'm an art student. So uh, I want to ask specifically about um, Orchard Road because uh, it's been going through tough times in recent years. Uh, I, I remember the head of the Orchard Road Planning Development in, in a Sunday Times article. He said that the thing that really annoys me is when people say Orchard Road is a, now sucks. Orchard Road has no hope. It doesn't give him, it, it doesn't give any solution. So, so uh, I, I know that, that um, the, the, the planners are looking at Japan's that crossing street, looking at Times Square and Seoul, where somehow despite being in, in expensive cities, they are very livable. So can you, so can you enlighten us all on, on, on what plans are there for, for, orchards, for orchards, and how is it any different from just building another mall that like has been done recently? Thank you. I think uh, perhaps you'd like to answer the two first. Um, okay. okay. Over. Yeah. I must first say that here I don't represent the government. <laughs> <laughs> I get the sense that you think I can uh, make all these pronouncements on behalf of everybody. So to be fair to my colleagues who are in the room, some who are from URA, uh, whatever I say don't mean they are saying it, okay? <laughs> it's just me saying it. So uh, firstly, uh, Joseph, thanks for the questions. Decking over highways and transport infrastructure is a possibility, but as I say, the big challenge is the economics. Uh, yes, the airspace is free, the structure is not, because you have to build a, tr a huge structure and you have to maintain it. So I would say is if we ever do it, it will have to be quite selective where you actually do it, and uh, we have to work out an economic argument. I, I think there are economic arguments. For example, if I were to do a park, um, if, I, if I deck over and put the park there, I can release that park land for other users. So that's an economic argument, right? So, uh, but I would be very careful where I put the deck. I'm not too sure I want to put over Orchard Road, which is the second question, <laughs> and uh, over Little India. I, these are huge structures. You have to be very sensitive to it. So I can think of some really appropriate places that we could do this, but we will have to make an economic argument. Now, Orchard Road, I'm really not the expert on the Orchard Road. Uh, URA, some of my colleagues are here. You feel free to answer, you know. <laughs> but having said that, I was involved in Orchard Road many years ago when I was in uh, URA. and uh, We wanted to make Orchard Road uh, uh, friendly. I, I, I actually don't think Orchard Road... I actually still like Orchard Road. I still go to Orchard Road, you know. I don't know. I'm sure many of you still go. So it's, it's not so dire the way people paint it, you know. It's just that it's not Orchard Road. It's, the point is about technology coming in and you have a lot of online shopping. So it's not just Orchard Road. It's retail in general. It's the death of retail. Uh, I also won't say it's the death of retail. I always think people are very resilient. They will find a way. But uh, for, for now, uh, the future of retail is a big question mark for many retailers. And there is no real answer. I, I attend a lot of conferences and they talk about this. And people are trying all sorts of things, right? Some people try the experiential one, you know. You go there, you're not just buying the coffee, but you do many other things. And so I, I think there are a lot of these things that are now happening. And we don't know where it will settle down, but people are trying all sorts of ways. Even I am trying because I built neighborhood centers, you know, lecture tree. <laughs> <laughs> Questions? Yes, please. 
Hello, um, I'm Drew from IPS. And so my question really is uh, with regards to perhaps the limits of planning. So you gave a lot of principles for planning, but I'm wondering if perhaps there needs to be space for urban experiments for you know the community, the citizenry to take up initiatives on their own, for the government to support these initiatives to try out new things perhaps, to respond to changing desires and needs. Thank you. Uh, would you like to answer that first? Because there's a whole, whole, bunch, of whole bunch from the uh, spillover theater. Okay. There, I think there's another group somewhere else, right? Okay. Yeah, I think uh, someone touched on this in the first lecture. Uh, it's really about urban experiments, consultation, and giving people a lot of free play. Uh, again, we have to understand the context. There are certain things that need to be planned, and I'm going to repeat what I said in the first lecture. Things like infrastructure, uh, power plants, incineration plants, railway lines. Of course, there's still consultation in that, but these really need to be centrally planned. Uh, there's less room for experimentation in this, in this sense. But as you cascade down to local level planning, actually you can do a lot of experimentation and co-create spaces with people. I'm going to touch a lot on this in the third lecture and show you many examples that I work with my residents and how wonderfully they can give me ideas and create the type of environment that they want. So I'm saying, yes, you can. But you also have to distinguish between different levels of planning and different levels of complexity in consultation and participation. All right. Thank you. Now I'm going to read a question from the audience in the other room. This is from Si Liang. Question. Recently, there was news of smart infrastructure in the form of smart lampposts that can, among many things, perform facial recognition. How do you balance the potential of smart infrastructure to harness this data against the privacy and rights of citizens? Now, um, I'll read the second question too. Uh, this one is from Kathleen Verstrati, British Council. Where do you see the role of arts and culture and creativity in the Singapore looking 20 years ahead in building the city? And how can you enable this? They're all different, you know. I think you'll be here the whole night, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, well, okay. Now, this one you may want to answer next round, but it is quite a political question. Uh, it's about leasehold. You want to hear that? Yeah. I thought you would never ask. Uh, Ellie Lim. Dr. Cheung, you mentioned leasehold as a key enabler of land rejuvenation, and I agree with that but it has also caused anxiety amongst Singaporeans, especially those living in old HDB flats with just 40 to 50 years of lease left. P 
people are worried about the value of their assets, and would you convince them that this is the still the right model of development? Yeah. Okay. You've so been here for a long time. The first time. one is lampposts, the second one is arts and culture, and the third is Quite a variety, <laughs> don't you think? All right. Uh, maybe let's look at smart lampposts. I suppose the point is not about the lampposts. Eh? The point is really about the privacy. Uh, yes, this conversation is being made throughout the world. Uh, with technology, you need data. Data means, look at Facebook, right? So it's two sides of the coin. Uh, the question is how do you strike a balance? The data is very useful to make a living convenient for people, comfortable for people, safe for people, because it keeps you safe, right? If the police can get data, it keeps you safe. But on the other hand, yes, there's a certain degree of privacy issues uh, that people might have to give up some privacy. But this is a conversation that will have to, uh, have to take place as we proceed on to moving into being a smart nation. Does it mean that therefore we don't harness technology? No, I don't think so. I think that conversation and where do you draw that right balance will be a conversation that is very much needed. But I think for some of the agencies that are working on this, they are very mindful of this concern. And we are just as mindful to protect the privacy of people. So very often, uh, again, it is not black or white. Because data can be anonymized. If you want to know, say, uh, how many people are on the buses so that, uh, so that LTA can pump more buses when they know this bus is full. But how do they know this bus is full? They only know because you tap your fare card, right? And you give them that information. So. My question to you is, so you want the bus to be full or you want buses that are not so full? You have to let LTA have the data so that they can put on more buses for you. So it's both sides, right? What, what, what do you want? If you want the convenience, you need to allow them to have that data. But that data is anonymized. Uh, but for the smart lampposts, uh, I must say I don't really know what is going to be fitted there. Uh, I think counting cars and all this, these are not sensitive data. Counting number of pedestrians walking, crossing the road is not sensitive data. I think probably you are referring to the newspaper report about facial recognition. And I, that one, uh, I can't answer on behalf of the, the police, uh, but, <laughs> but the reality is uh, when we all watch the movies, right, and, and you want to catch a crook, uh, what do the police do? There are all these cameras in the city, you know, New York, CCTV, and they look for the guy. So, it's not just Singapore, right? It's everywhere. But it keeps the city safe. So, these are the issues that we, as a nation and a society, will have to debate it and make those decisions. Okay? Now, what was Arts the and culture. Uh, arts and culture. Uh, yes, Kathleen, right? Yes. Kathleen, I'm a strong supporter of arts and culture, particularly during my time in uh, URA. I think we have come a long way. Uh, I must say earlier on, maybe several decades ago, when it was pretty much in its infancy, yeah, uh, we didn't have such a strong arts and culture scene. But as a planner, I must say that I worked very hard to protect a lot of the heritage and the arts uh, uh, buildings. And I'm so pleased that uh, 
I think we have a much richer environment. For example, the National Art Gallery. Uh, so beautiful. I tell you, when I go there, I'm so happy. Why? Because I was working to try and have that building repurposed and to um, renovate it into such a beautiful gallery. In fact, I was on the jury panel. So I must say it has brought a totally new dimension to our lives, right? I'm a strong supporter of the Esplanade. But of course, in arts and culture, it is not cheap to do. So again, it's always about resources and the amount of money that you actually can give to arts and culture. But I must say, in the last two decades, we have really moved on this. And I, I think a lot of us enjoy what is there today. But they need patrons. Huh? Arts and culture don't mean that you put the building there, nobody goes to the museum and all that. It's, 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 it's pointless, right? So it needs patrons, it needs supporters like all of us. Okay, the least whole question. Uh, let me see what was exactly asked. Huh? Oh, is it the right model? Okay. This is the right model, yeah. All right. And people are feeling anxious. Yeah. Understandably. But let me, let me try and put it in context. In, in the light of the lecture, in fact, I, I, uh, I expect you to ask a question like that when I talked about leasehold, but I wanted everyone to understand that Singapore's limitations. And the, uh, my interest as an architect planner is to bring Singapore into the future, right? Singapore S100, S200. Given that you are a small place, how do you ensure that we have facilities and housing for our children, our grandchildren, way into the future? So in a way, the leasehold land enables us to recover the land for another generation. So that's the overarching uh, umbrella that we're thinking about now. Next step. HDB flats are sold at 99-year lease. In fact, HDB flats, you get the full 99-year lease, unlike, unlike private developments. Did you know that? <laughs> okay, you don't know, better check <laughs> your home. Uh, 99 years is meant for a home, and it's enough for two generations. Okay, it lasts you for two generations. It's a long time. And for most people, by the time they live in it, after one generation, in fact, they can monetize the home. And there are many ways to monetize today, right? You can sell the larger flat and you can buy a smaller flat. I built a lot of smaller flats, uh, which uh, a lot of my elderly love, because they really don't want to maintain such a big home. And with the money they put back into CPF is enough, and you buy CPF life. So there are many ways to monetize. Uh, if they want to stay in their own home, they can do a lease buyback. I buy back some of the leases, and then they, we, we make sure you keep the lease that will last you the lifetime, uh, the length of your life. Uh, and another way of monetization is people rent out rooms in their home. And there are people who actually sell off and then go and live with the children. But okay, some of you may not want to live with the children. You can buy other smaller flats. So there are many ways of monetizing within the period of the 99 years. And you must remember that actually um, their children will go on to buy an affordable flat from me. Correct? Now, how do you make sure they can buy an affordable flat from me? Eventually, you have to recycle the land. Do you understand? So I, I'm trying to paint that 
broader picture. And there are actually quite a lot of ways to uh, continue to monetize. 99 years is a long time. Can I just ask a um, tag-on yeah. question, uh, Yen? How many uh, homeowners live in the same flat throughout their lives? Because surely they would have sold it to somebody else, made some money, bought another apartment. The next person, when they buy it at a much lower, you know, shorter lease, will pay much less money. So it, you know, it's not like they lose the money. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, see a lot of comments. <laughs> they don't believe it. They I still pay a lot of money. They still pay a lot, is it, yes. for the apartment? No, no I, I think that's where... Oh, now I'm stirring the pot. No, no. <laughs> uh, no there's a mixture. Uh, uh, sub, there are quite a number who still live in their own flats. There are also a lot who monetize. Actually, Singaporeans move house a lot, you know, compared to, uh, I think, people in overseas cities. I don't have the statistics here, but I think there are quite a lot of people who do sell and then move on to something else. Uh, so the, the point really is about making prudent choice. Prudent choice is very important. You should buy a, a flat, as you say, it commensurates with the lease. The price you pay should commensurate with the lease. And you should buy a, a flat that will last you your lifetime. So I think these are prudent choices that you probably need to be sure you, you are making. Um, Ariel, can I go on? Still? Another five minutes. There's Sorry, a, we'll keep you for there's five a lady minutes. waiting to ask a question. Yes, yes. So uh, you have this question. Hi, uh, good evening. Uh, Dr. Chong and uh, Professor Chen. Uh, my name is Sylvia Lee, um, not from any organization. Uh, my question is about livability and lovability of a city. I think Singapore is greatly livable, very functional. Um, you know, everything in order, things work. And I think for a city, um, it's a balance between lovable and livable. And um, of course, it's hard to have a city that is both lovable and livable. I think it, it is nice, but I think it's hard. So how, in your view, um, would, uh, is you know, um, Singapore going to, are we going to achieve lovability for Singapore as well, um, in addition to the livability? Thank you. Thank you, Sylvia, right? Yes. Yeah. I actually think we should try and achieve both. You, 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 you can be a livable cities. Livable cities are sometimes easier to achieve, you know, because there are things that you build, you can design for it, right? Livable is a lot harder because livable involves everybody. So I was asked again, why do I give this lecture at all, you know, and come here and face your question on these whole properties? <laughs> I give these lectures because I wanted to create a greater awareness of what it takes to build and develop a city, this place we call home that we love, and to actually encourage people to love the city, to take part and to take ownership of being part of the city. And uh, to me, that's what Lovable is about. Lovability has a lot more to do also with uh, getting people to be involved. Because I think when people are involved, that makes a whole world of difference, right? Uh, a city is not so lovable if you just sit there and wait for everybody to do something for you. It's lovable if you are part of the process and you give back. There's a, there's a beauty in giving back things, you know? Right? When I think, I know a lot of you, maybe you are volunteering or helping. When you give back, it triggers something in you, a certain emotion. And uh, lovable cities is about emotion. 
is about the soul of the city. And sometimes there are cities that are not very livable, but people still love the city. So I, I think as planners, it is a very difficult part of the work. And uh, we try very hard to get people to participate, but you really need two hands to clap. Of course, the planners want to take the feedback, and then there's a conversation, and uh, people try to co-create things with you. So uh, I think when I talk about HDB, it's a little easier because you, you see more of the real examples. But many of the uh, agencies have, over the last maybe two plus decades, been trying very hard to, to do better engagement. We are learning. In my first uh, uh, lecture, uh, someone asked, you know, what do you think we can do better? I say, actually, we need to learn how to engage better. Where we're not quite good at it, uh, there's a lot more to be done. How do you, uh, how do you touch the emotion? You know, when I, when I talk to my, my colleagues, uh, my colleagues probably smile you know, when they sit here and look at me. I always say it's the emotion, it's the, the touching of the emotion. I, I built public housing. I try and cater for people and I try and take care of them as well as I can. But sometimes we still get scolded. Lah, huh? But it's the purpose and the meaning behind the job. It's, it's not that one interaction. Because if the person is not happy about something, there's usually other issues, right? So you try to look beyond that issue and say, how can I help you? We cannot always say yes, but it's an attitude. So similarly, I feel engagement is an attitude. It's an attitude of saying, can you work with me to do something? So in the first lecture, I talk about the weak point we have is we're not very good at persuading. Engagement is not only about people telling us what they want, but it's a two-way conversation. It's also about persuading you why certain things might need to be done in a certain way. Sorry, very long answer. Um. Now, Kunian, if you will allow me sure. to join in the conversation, because I worked on a topic, Asia's uh, future cities, sustainable, livable, lovable. Mm. So I played around with the concept of lovability too. Now, you come at it from the engagement point of view, and it is truly one way of getting at it. I looked at lovability as, are there sacred spaces in the city? Sacred spaces, secular sacred places. It's not about churches or mosques and so on. But it's sacred spaces. Spaces that people love and adore. If you ask Singaporeans, do you have a sacred space in Singapore? Everyone will tell you, botanic gardens. That comes out very easily. Some say, the old National Library, which was pulled down. Okay? <laughs> But they said, the old National Library, because I dated my first girlfriend there, and I married her, and so on and so forth. So cities must have sacred spaces. But sacred spaces are adopted by people, and you embrace the space as a sacred space. Planners produce the parameters, and they create the configurations, and the space becomes if it's adopted and loved by people, whether it's a park, a building. Finally, all sacred spaces everywhere seem to be quiet, you know, have a quiet air about it. But I think if people, you know, New Yorkers, they go to the park, Central Park, they go to Cloisters, Battery Park, and so on. 
If in a city, citizens feel that there are sacred spaces they can adopt, they will come to love the city. This is my place. This is my city. This is my special haven. So that's another take on lovability. Yeah. Are there any other questions here? I had that, a that's question. Okay. That, and there's two. I'll give these two as the two last questions, both women. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and Anne Wee wants to ask you three women. Oh, no, you are bringing the question to her. Sorry, Anne, yes, please. Uh, Anne Wee from NUS. Um, because I'm deaf, I apologize if somebody's already made this point. I feel, would you feel that the complications of housing Singaporeans has become greater? I feel that in the early days of the housing board, people would tell you about the quality of the flat they were going in and about its convenience and everything. Now, they also seem to take a high priority. It's resale value. So they look at a house a, a roof, not only for its living quality, but what they can make on it, potentially what they can make on it. Now, doesn't that make the problem of housing Singaporeans <laughs> a lot more complicated? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is yes, it does, does so. And uh, I think we do remind uh, people often that Public housing is a home, first of all. It's a home. And in the Singapore conversation a couple of years ago, uh, when we asked people, you know, how do you view your, your housing? Is it public housing? Is it uh, uh, an asset or a home? Actually, it's quite encouraging. Most people come back with the feedback, it should be a home first, and then an asset second. So I think that's encouraging. Uh, so therefore, we always say, make prudent choices. Don't speculate on your HDB flat. <laughs> thank you. There's a last question up in the corner. Hi. Thank you so much for such an interesting lecture. Your name? Um, I'm Shubha from HR Strategies. My question is, as planners, you'll design lovely things and sort of you'll make it possible, put the infrastructure. But there's a lot of trying to get people to change their behavior. Just like you talked about making Singapore car light. We, we came as expats to Singapore, and now we've settled in Singapore. We've made it our home. But we still see there is still a huge sort of pullback. People don't like to take the public transport. So I keep asking myself, what can you all do as planners to also get people to change their behaviors so that we can actually optimize this beautiful plan that you all make? Well, actually, it's not just the planners. Uh, but it's important to give people alternative if you want people to take, um, get off the car, right? Uh, so my colleagues, LTA, are trying very hard to build a lot more rail lines. The density of a rail line will be very dense, you know? It'll be almost like New York. You're living within 10 minutes of a station everywhere, you know? So they are trying very hard, but it takes time. So we are feeling it because this is the transition period because you're trying to build, and then you will have some disruption to the train. But uh, if I'm not wrong, I think actually more people are taking public transport as more lines open up. 
So it's not just what the planners do, but it's also encouraging a switch in uh, the people's the way people attitude is to car. You know, uh, I was told that because uh, I know that one of the deans in the University of Pennsylvania in the U.S. She tells me that all her kids don't drive, you know, all the students. They don't drive. They, they just go for car sharing. And, and they are very novel in the way they give you car sharing. Huh? Today you have Blue SG. It looks a bit boring, you know. But in uh, UPenn, she told me that if, I, if I'm a guy and I, if I, I want to date somebody for the night out, you know, and I order an EV car, I can come with different colors, you know, even polka dots if you want. So if I'm a lady, I want to order a pink car. So, so what, what is, uh, the, the car sharing companies are so novel in the way in which they encourage you to, to uh, uh, get off the car. So again, technology, and uh, as I was giving you the example of China, TT, uh, they can predict where you're going before you even call for the, the equivalent of the Uber or Grab. So technology helps. So it's about last mile. So there's a lot of work being done on making the last mile easy for you, the train. That's why they say use bicycles. So I, frankly, every time I go home, I see people cycling because they drop off at the MRT station, they take the bicycle and they're cycling home. That's the last mile. So we are experimenting with many, many different ways. Right now, it's probably a little bit untidy, but I think in five, 10 years time, it may change. It's likely to change, okay? Thank you. Well, uh, I have to say, on your behalf, on the behalf of the audience, I want to thank you, Kun Yen, for this really inspiring, and I would say, um, a introduction to the awesome planning that has been going on in Singapore. If we didn't know before, we know now. You know, and thank you very much. They've been totally engaged, and you've had a lot of questions. Please thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cheong and Professor Chan for being the most lovable speakers. As mentioned, Dr. Cheong's uh, third and final lecture and the most exciting one will be on the 23rd of April. Details on our website. We hope to see you then. Thank you. Good evening.